Thank you, fellas. That's an excellent song to introduce the Bible study tonight. And I want to uh, uh, make an announcement now that may shock some of you. Some of you thought that I was going to lead the Bible study in the book of First and Second and Third John, and you've already read those Bible books, and I'm grateful that you did, but I changed my mind. <laughs> I would try to blame the pastor for it, but, you know, like saying that when he was one of my seminary students, I taught them against doing that, or something like that, but there's really no way to get around the fact that when I talked about coming to do the Bible study this year, two Bible books were on my heart. First, second, third John, of course, that section of Bible books and also the, uh, the epistle of James. As we moved along toward uh, uh, making a decision, the Lord prompted me to turn our attention to the book of James for uh, obvious reasons that you will see as we move along together. So I invite you, if you will, to open your Bibles to the epistle of James and we'll start in the first chapter and while you're turning there, I want to express my appreciation to all of you for allowing me to come back and be with you. I look forward to the Bible studies uh, in the morning and then Tuesday and uh, Wednesday morning as we uh, serve the Lord together by feeding on His Word and discerning how He wants us to put His Word to work in the lives that we have and the work that He's given us to do in our uh, homes and in the church and in the kingdom work that He's given us around the corner and around the world. Now, this song that we've just sung is very helpful for us to focus our attention uh, on the book of James because it, it, it involves the wondrous cross, surveying the wondrous cross. That's a good way for us to think about James who wrote this Bible book. I'm going to read the first few verses, then we'll pray together, and then I want to talk about this person whose name is before us as James and why the wondrous cross made such a difference in his life at the very outset of this Bible book. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. And now notice this, friends. Notice how difficult it is for us to take the next verse seriously. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this Bible book that you've led me to teach. Now I pray that as we learn from it together that you will help us to apply the lessons herein so that we can be people of the book, not just in the way that we know it better, but in the way that we put it to work in our lives. Thank you for James. For, thank you for the way that the Holy Spirit pushed the pen as he wrote this letter to the churches in transition. And I thank you in advance for the way that it's going to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now you notice in the Bible book that we start with the word James. Who is this person, James? His uh, name has a great deal to do with uh, lots of stories that we have in the New Testament. There is the James, the brother of John, and then there's another James or two that are littered uh, throughout the gospel accounts that we could say, well, maybe that's the guy. No, maybe that's the guy. But, we, but Bible scholars have pretty much settled on the fact that this James is a person whose life was changed because what happened when he surveyed the wondrous cross. The James we have here is none other than the James who is the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. 
This James is a person who, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he was uh, among the brothers and even his even their mom who sort of wondered what Jesus was up to. And you remember a couple of times in the gospel accounts that mom and the boys went to find Jesus and to bring him home because he was just too busy. He wasn't eating right. They were concerned about his mental and emotional health and they tried to get him to go home and they said, they said, come home to us. And this is where Jesus responded by saying, home, family, here's my family, here's my brothers, here's my mother, these people who do the will of God. Do you remember that in the gospel accounts, how Jesus affirmed that his family consisted of those people who walked with Jesus? James was a part of Jesus' family with Mary and Joseph, half-brother of Jesus, of course, his father, God Almighty, and the, mother, the father of James was Joseph the carpenter. But they lived together, and James and Jude and some of the other relatives were cynics of Jesus when he was growing up. But then something happened. What happened is that James witnessed in one way or the other the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was the person who uh, was a cynic as he watched Jesus minister to people and feed them and preach and, and get into trouble with the religious leaders. And then he became the person who was devoted to Jesus Christ in a most profound way, as I'm going to show you in just a little while. Why did he make that radical transition? Why did he go from being a cynical half-brother to a follower of Jesus Christ? It has to do with the wondrous cross. If you go back to the book of Acts, you'll find where Jesus, after he has died, after he has been raised from the dead, after he has uh, uh, talked to his disciples, before he is ascended, he tells them about the work of the Holy Spirit that's going to be evident in the way they live. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to bear witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he told those people, those disciples, you stay right here in Jerusalem until that Holy Spirit comes. It would have been safer for them to have gone back to Galilee or wherever they came from. But he said, you stay right there. And you'll notice if you read the first chapter of Acts that they did exactly what Jesus said. After he ascended and uh, went behind the clouds, as it were, two men appeared to the disciples as they were staring up <clears throat> into the clouds and, and said to them, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the clouds? This Jesus who left is going to come one day just as he left us. Do what he said. Get busy on the work that he's given you to do. And you'll notice in the storyline that the disciples went away to the city of Jerusalem to an upper room and they stayed there and they prayed. These events took place not long after Passover, not long, of course, after the resurrection, not long after Jesus ascended. And just a, a few days later, a few weeks later, was going to be the festival called Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And that's when the events that, that take place that have Simon Peter standing up and preaching in the power of the Spirit and the church is born as thousands of baby believers burst into the world begging for food and nourishment and a new home in Christ Jesus. And it's in that setting that the Bible says in the book of Acts that not only did the 11 disciples go to this upper room and pray until Pentecost, but it says that Mary went as well. And you know who else went? Some of the brothers of Jesus, two of whom we know, James and Jude. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you ever feel justified 
when it comes to the time for you to connect yourself with somebody important, somebody special. Just this morning at the church where I preached, somebody was talking about Robin Williams and the tragedy of his uh, death. It was a, an awful thing to have to hear the news and to watch the whole world uh, w- you know, ripple through the news and to deal with it because he was such a popular person. Well, in the church where I preached this morning, somebody said, did you know that Robin Williams was a great-grandson of the lieutenant governor of the great state of Mississippi? You know how we like to make those connections like that? I don't have any illustrations like that to give you from my personal life. I'll just be honest with you. But, but it's good to, to be able to share those things. Now, if I were James and I were beginning a Bible book about me and the church, you know what I would say? I would say, James, the half-brother of Jesus who's in charge of this outfit. That's what I would say. But not this James. You notice in the first verse how he introduces himself. He says, James, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the word bondservant there in the first verse? He is the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one whose plan of salvation was being worked out and centered in his son Jesus who came in Bethlehem's manger and lived and died and lived again so that you and I would never have to die. And after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, those disciples were really proud to refer to him as Lord Jesus Christ because all three of those terms bound up together fulfilled the prophecies about the Messiah who came and lived and died so that everyone who received his gift of salvation opened their hearts to the loving gift of God through, through the salvation that can only come through him. They can experience what a wonder it is to belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to, to know that we serve and have devoted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ because he initiated salvation. He's the one who in his love made it possible for you and me to be saved. J- James is one of those people who sees himself as a person whose life was turned upside down when he surveyed the wondrous cross. Why was he able to join the 120 people who prayed until Pentecost? What was it that made him go from being a cynical half-brother to being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? He got to see Jesus on the cross. He got to hear what he said. He got to see that he was uh, raised from the dead. He got to see that he was the resurrected Lord. And somewhere through all of that process, his life was changed. And it has to do with what happened when... He surveyed that wondrous cross. Now, I ask you this question tonight as we move along in this Bible study. Has Jesus Christ made that kind of difference in your life? Has he turned you upside down so that not, what's, not impo- what's important for you is not that you are connected with certain people, you have a certain bloodline, or you have a certain home in a certain area, but what really is important for you is that what you too have surveyed the wondrous cross and the gospel that centers in Christ Jesus has turned your life upside down and now you are a new person. I appreciate the way James showed himself to us by saying that he was a bondservant of Jesus. The lowest uh, the lowest level of servitude, this bondservant, this person who had no choices of his own, had no life of his own, 
this person whose life belonged to the one who owned him, who had no freedom to choose how he would live or die. All of these descriptions fit well into the portrait, portrait that's given to us of a bondservant. And James sees himself as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And if you read in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 12, you get to understand the pivotal place that he played in the, role, in the leadership of the church at a very critical time. Once you get to the 12th chapter of the book of Acts, you get to see the gospel is spreading everywhere. People are hearing the gospel. They're responding to it. They're getting saved. Lives are transformed. Thousands of people are being born into the kingdom. The church continues to grow. They're forming an, a, a kind of community that only can be answered for by the work of the Spirit. They're sharing together. They're taking their meals together. They're caring for one another. They're into the Word of God together every day. They're growing in the Lord. And it gets to be a really threatening experience for a lot of the people living in Jerusalem at that time. One of them is the guy whose name is Herod. So by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, we get to see the first martyrdom of a Christian uh, in the book of Acts. And it's, and it's talked about very early on in the 12th chapter of Acts where it says that James, not the James who wrote this Bible book, but James who is the brother of John, those two boys who were the sons of Zebedee, who were called sons of thunder, who Jesus always picked at because they were like bulls in a china shop. John and his brother James, who were with Simon Peter when they started following Jesus and heard Jesus say to them, but follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. These are the men who were in charge of the church. These three men moved ahead. And then John's brother James was murdered by Herod. And when he saw Herod did that some of the Jewish people in Jerusalem kind of like that, he went ahead and threw Simon Peter in jail too. He was going to give him a dose of what he had given to James, what he had given to John, what he had given to James, the brother of John. So now the church was lacking a leader. According to what most folks say, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, he was like the pastor of the church, the leader of the church. When he was murdered by Herod, who was going to step in? Well, if you read the book of Acts chapter 15 and some of these other passages in the book of Acts, you, you get the clear impression that it was this James here who is the half-brother of Jesus who takes over the leadership of the church at a critical time. Now, this is where I think the Lord prompted me to shift to the book of James because of where you are and where I happen to be in my walk with Jesus Christ right now. When James, the brother of John, was the pastor of the church, they all were in Jerusalem. But by the time that we have this James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, coming along to serve the church in Jerusalem, something dramatic has taken place. As I said, the pastor has been murdered and Herod starts persecuting Christians and it's not long after that that Christians have to run for their lives. Jesus told them that it would be that way. He told them that, that they would suffer this kind of persecution and they're going to all of the different places where they can go for safety. I cannot imagine what it must have been like in those days to understand that because of Jesus in your life you're going to have to pack up your suitcases and move someplace else so that you could live in safety. That kind of person Persecution, coupled with other kinds of un, a nation, a national unrest caused these people to have to wander off and start over in a fresh place. And that's why James, the pastor of the church now, the half-brother of Jesus, the bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, greets these people who are a part of his church and, and acknowledges them as the 12 tribes, as it were, who are dispersed abroad. He's got a church 
that's all over the map. And the only way he can pastor them is to write them letters. And he's concerned about them because he knows that they're struggling trying to find a way to be Christians in a new environment. It's sort of like what happened in Hurricane uh, Katrina. I know that we sort of get weary of Katrina stories, but this one will help us to kind of get our head around what must have happened back in those days. Do you remember when Hurricane Katrina came along? There was a forced population shift north. Baton Rouge was absolutely clogged with people where we had gone for safety. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you couldn't get anywhere around there. And I could hear people in the grocery stores talking about how they would love for those people from Louisiana to go back where they came from. It was a forced population shift. And all across the southern part of the country, people had to go to different places and many of them had to start all over and try it in a new spot. And you know what? I'm looking at the nods of affirmation on the faces of some of you because you're the ones who had to do just that. Now, here we are at Temple Baptist Church in Ruston, Louisiana, and you're thinking to yourself, nobody forced me out. I'm not in a new spot. Brother and sister in Christ, I think we are. We're in a completely different world than we were this uh, 10 years ago. Completely different time. Completely different set of circumstances. I don't want to scare you with talk of blood moons and all that sort of stuff. And I did think, what if I talked about the blood moon? Now, that would have, we'd have a lot of people coming to the Bible study. and Maybe we can deal with that some. But we have a lot of talk about that, and we have a lot of stuff going on in Israel, a lot of stuff going on in the Middle East that makes you see that we're in a different time. The other day, I was at a conference for uh, Baptist College presidents. I appreciate you introducing me as the interim president. My favorite adjective in the whole wide world is interim. I love it. I love interim because it's a word that's going to be erased when they bring a new president. I am not going to be the new president, I'm proud to tell you, because I'm a preacher and a pastor. I went to that school to teach preachers, and as soon as they get a president, that's what I'm going to go back and do. Now, having said that, I went to a meeting because I was the interim president, and at that meeting, we had the attorney for some of our Southern Baptist causes to stand up and talk to us about Christian higher education and the crisis that we're going to be facing because of Supreme Court rulings that have had to do with rearranging what it, what it means to be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and marriage, and who gets married and who can't get married. And the more he talked, the more my head spun, and the more I asked God, please bring a president soon because I don't know if we can handle all this. You know what I'm talking about. You could just read it in the Internet. Lots of news out there about changes taking place in the legal system. This, this, uh, prof- this professor of jurisprudence, if you will, who has, a, has a, uh, a resume 10 miles long and a track record that is absolutely impeccable, made this remark. He said, from the Supreme Court ruling that had to do with same-sex marriage, he said, I have never in my entire life seen the rapidity the pace at which similar laws have been passed across the country. He said, we cannot keep up with what's going on. Well, I don't have to talk about national politics or international affairs. You probably know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to living in a different place. We're having to make different kinds of moral choices in different contexts like never before. 
And some of us would rather run off into a place and pretend that it's, you know, always like it, but it's not. You know it isn't. All you have to do is have a child to come in from school and to ask you a question. All you have to do is be a parent and try to sort out what you, what you do in terms of guiding your children. All you have to do is listen to your grandchildren and it makes you go to your knees and ask God to help. Please give us insight so that we can live for Christ in a different setting. And that, my friends, is the reason God prompted me to come to you to tonight and through the course of this week with lessons from the book of James because that's what this pastor is trying to do with the people he's serving in a long-distance relationship. No, they didn't have the internet and no, they didn't have digital access to everybody, but she was still trying to be a pastor to these people who are scattered in remote locations all across that part of the world. And so, if you're in that position and you're the pastor of a church and you're trying to help the people along so that they will know how they're supposed to serve the Lord, what's the first message you want to give them? What's the message you want them to get their head around? What's the bright, shiny object you want them to look at so that they will not lose sight of it? If you are a pastor and you are in the circumstance that I've described that James was in, if you're a pastor and you're in the circumstance where the people are in, you got a pastor who loves the Lord, his half-brother is his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his congregation has been spread all around the world and they're trying to learn how to be a Christian in new settings, what would you say to them? What kind of message would you say, would give to them? I don't know what you would give, but thanks be to God, the Holy Spirit pushed the pen and James gave the message for those people that they needed to have. And the message went something like this. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That just does not sound like the kind of message that's going to make people want to just run to you and find out more. But it is the kind of message that people who are trying to do Christianity in a different place want to hear and need to hear. First of all, let me put a picture up on the screen in in your head anyway. It's the picture of an accounting uh, sheet, a ledger sheet, and it's got two columns And in one column, you have joys. And in the other column, you have sorrows. And those two columns are what maybe would keep you posted on what James is talking about when he says, count it all joy. Every day, it's as as if we sit down to a ledger sheet and we look at the challenges we face and we decide if these challenges are going to be sources of joy for us or will they be sources of sorrow for us? I had to move to a new place. Is that a source of joy or a source of sorrow? I've been persecuted today because I'm a believer. Is that a source of sorrow or is it a source of joy? I, I've, I'm sick and I don't know what to do. A source of joy, source of sorrow. My friend is hurting. Source of joy, is it in the joy column or is it in the sorrow column? Do you get the picture? And, the, and James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, the pastor of the church, says, take and make it your intention. Take the initiative. Sit down at the ledger sheet of your life and all of the things that you ordinarily would put in the sorrow column by faith, erase them and put them over into the joy column. And I'm looking into the faces of people who say to me, you've got to be kidding. You don't know what kind of sorrows I have. But the Lord does. 
And the same God who pushed the pen in James' hand for the people in the first century are, is at work so that we will do the same thing in the 21st century by taking the pen by faith and removing things that are in the sorrow column and put them, putting them in the joy column. May I talk about joy for just a little while? Joy now is not this kind of happiness. It's two different things. Happiness has to do with circumstances. Joy has to do with relationships. Happiness has to do with uh, the fact that you didn't have to pay any more income tax than what you had already paid in, and you found that out. Happiness is even enhanced with the reality that you get a little bit back when uh, the income tax uh, settlement is made. Happiness is you getting what you wanted for Christmas. Happiness is the kind of thing when you realize that what you're going to have for dinner tonight is what you really love. Happiness, happiness is the realization that this guest preacher is going to stop talking in about 12 minutes. That's happiness, you see. That's happiness. <laughs> Joy is something entirely different. Joy is the flag over the fortress of your heart that announces that the king is on his throne. Joy is... Is, the, is nothing more than enjoying the presence of God and relishing in the reality that we get to live and work and experience good things because of the gracious hands that He's uh, extended to us. Joy. All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, everybody insisted for God's people to have joy. Do you remember in the book of Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, you have in that marvelous story of chapter 8, Ezra who is a scribe and uh, Nehemiah who is the governor. Nehemiah got those people in a building project that they never thought they could complete. He went into the city of Jerusalem after the walls had been uh, uh, torn down for 70 years and uh, nobody could rebuild the walls. They tried to build the, rebuild the temple but it was a, it was a sorry sort of an effort and Nehemiah heard about it and he asked the king in uh, Babylon if he could come and help out and the king said yes, gave him some people, gave him some resources and old Nehemiah quietly went around the edge of the beaten up city of Jerusalem and he figured out what it was going to take to rebuild the walls and he gathered the people of God together and he said let's get those, uh, that wall rebuilt so that we can have some protection in God's city and you know what, they got busy and the people who had moved in, sort of the folks who had squatted there after the people of Israel had been taken off into captive, they got upset because they could see that God's people were about to reclaim their city. They had all kinds of threats, and Nehemiah just kept on or giving orders to the people so that they would rebuild that wall. And you know what they did? In 52 days, they rebuilt that wall, and they were so proud. There was a celebration that took place, maybe because they rebuilt the walls, or maybe it was just because it was a time on the calendar for them to have a celebration. And so some of the people said, listen, uh, Ezra, would you do us a favor and read us God's word? We haven't heard God's word here in a long time. And so Ezra did exactly what uh, the scripture said, he, what they asked them to do. And what I love about it is that in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have the portrayal there in that section of scripture where they made uh, Ezra a pulpit a pulpit for him to put the scroll on and he began to read the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. And the more he read, the more people soaked up 
the Word of God. And the more they soaked up the Word of God, the more they realized that they were not right with God. And the more they made that realization, the more repentant they became, the more they wept over their sin. And finally, either Ezra and Nehemiah, one of them had to say to the people there, Hey, folks, folks, this is a holy day. I know you are crying because God's word has made you realize that you are not fit to be in the presence of the king of kings. But let repentance have its work in your life so that it gives rise to joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So make repentance do what it will, but make yourself rejoice because you're in the presence of God. Over in Psalm 30 verse 5, David had been sick for a long time. And he thanked God for what, he had done, for what God had done in healing him. And he made this remark about house guests. And the, the remark goes something like this. Sorrow may spend the night at your house. How many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you had sorrow to spend the night at your house last night? It happens. But then David went on to say, Sorrow may spend the night at your house, but joy shouts out loud in the morning. All through the Old Testament, you have these places where God's people are told to rejoice. And the biggest threat to our joy are these joy robbers that we call sorrows. And that's why James tells us in the first part of this Bible book to do an accounting change so that whatever it is that's causing us sorrow, by faith erase it and put it into the joy column. Now, some people say, preacher, that sounds a little silly, you know. Oh, I've got cancer and I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. You know, that kind of thing. We wonder, are you, are you serious, preacher? It sounds like such a mythical, mystical kind of transaction that has no basis in fact whatsoever. It is a difficult transaction. But when we make it, you know what's going to happen to us? The kind of change that makes us sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And let me show you how. As we read through this Bible book in chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, where he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The word encounter means fall into, like you fall into a pit. Various has to do with variegated. You have one kind of trial, and then you fall into another, and then you fall into another. Have you ever noticed that it works that way? You know, it comes in threes. Some people say the tragedies in our lives, that when you have one crisis, another comes on the heels of that, and another on the heels of that. He said, count it all joy when you find yourself just tumbling into a pit of trials one after the other that come at you from different angles all at the same time by faith reckon those as reasons for joy instead of sorrow because he said in verse 3 knowing that these trials are going to purify your faith test your faith not to determine if you have faith or not but to test it like it would like a gold would be tested in the in the uh, pot that is, that's boiling up all of the alloy and all of the trash that's in it. The, the, real, the reality of it is, my friends, that some of us trust Jesus Christ as long as He gives us what we want. But the kind of trust that Pastor James wants us to, to nurture is the kind of trust that 
embraces faith in Jesus Christ no matter what he does. No matter what he does. And that's why he referred to, in verse 3, endurance. The kind of enduring faith is the kind of faith that's durable and lasts throughout all kinds of struggles. If we take what we are experiencing and see those troubles as opportunities for our faith to be strengthened so that it will be enduring, so that it will stay stable no matter what, it's in that moment that we find ourselves understanding why the pastor said, count it all joy. Read the stories of great missionaries and you'll find them having to deal with sickness and with death. You'll find them having to deal with relocation. You'll find them having to deal with misunderstandings. But all the while, they continue to move ahead because they see themselves growing in the Lord so that their faith has, has been, become resilient and durable. It endures the most difficult times. And as a result, in verse 4, and let endurance have its perfect result. You'll know it's finished when it says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect has to do with perfect on the inside. The word complete has to do with perfect on the outside. The purpose of these these struggles and trials is not to just frustrate us and to make us miserable people, but God takes everything in our lives, even the painful things. He does not waste a thing. And if we will let Him work in us, what will be nourished in us is the kind of trust in God that will hang on to Him no matter matter what and as a result no matter what comes our way no matter what kind of struggles we face no matter what kind of disabilities and dis, uh, disappointments we have to endure in life we will be able to handle them and for that reason we rejoice pray with me father i thank you that as we begin this bible book that you introduce us to a person whose life was turned upside down because of a relationship with your Son, our Savior Jesus. And I thank you that as we commence in this Bible study, that we'll be able to see how counting it all joy helps us to be the people you want us to be in a different situation in which we find ourselves. Now, I pray tonight that it's this invitation time that you will guide believers to take that step of faith And take the things that break their hearts and by faith help them to see them as potential opportunities for joy. Because they'll see you work in them. They'll see you work to make them stronger. They'll see you work in them so that their trust in you will endure. Help them tonight, my brothers and sisters in Christ, as they make that transition from sorrow to joy and account for their struggles in just that way. I pray for that person who is lost without Jesus tonight, who's come to this church because you brought him here, because you wanted her here, because you love them, and you kept on nudging them about being in this worship service, and they got to hear the story about a man whose life was turned upside down because he witnessed the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And tonight, the good news of salvation has pierced that person's heart. Help him or her, help them to come so that they'll receive you into their lives tonight. And we ask that you guide us as we make other decisions in keeping with this Bible passage in keeping with the way your Holy Spirit is helping us to open our hearts so that we can replace sorrow with joy in you.
Now in this invitation time, we thank you for what you're going to do tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'll ask Dale to come. Would you please stand as we sing our hymn of invitation. As God prompts you to come, you do just that. <laughs>